0: Hi, Dan Kaufman. Nice to see you again. Hi, Dan Tippins. It is always good to see you. Excellent. So let's go ahead and introduce ourselves a little bit. I am Dan Tippins. I am one of the um, editors at the Electric Agora and best friend of Dan Kaufman over here. (laughs) And Dan, why don't you introduce yourself briefly for us? So I am um, also an
1: editor of The Electric Agora. Dan, Dan and I, of course, as as you all know, um, as, as many in our audience will know, uh, founded the site together. Um, and I'm also a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. And yes, Dan and I are very good friends. Um, so good, in fact, that when I was in New York a few weeks ago, uh, I dragged him along with me on a what can only be described as a as a food orgy tour <laughs> through Chinatown and Little Italy, um, which uh, was tremendously enjoyable. Yeah, I, f- I found I've, a soulmate. I've... I found someone who can eat as much and as enthusiastically as I can. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still
0: I'm still recovering from that. I didn't let you know during the trip, but I was dying, stuffing my face there. Were uh, we really? <laughs> no. no, you really? now you are That was the best part. That was the best thing in my life. So, what are we doing today, Dan Tippins? Um, so, Dan Kaufman, today we are. By the way, should we just note to the audience we're going to continue to use each other's last names for the entirety of the dialogue? Probably. That's okay. A good great. Um, so today we're going to be talking about. Moral intuitions and their role in motivating behavior, and their relationship to moral theories. Now, I've left this intentionally vague because this is going to take on you know many different forms of questions um, that would answer all of these different things that I just laid out. And this is kind of a follow-up dialogue on a piece that you wrote in the past on moral intuitionism or moral intuitions, um, where you were heavily you were criticizing. Um, anyone who would claim that we could evaluate our moral theories on anything besides moral intuitions. Um, I, I at least, at least system. said, I at least said, I at least said that
1: moral intuitions ultimately provide the conditions of adequacy against which any moral theory is measured. So I did say that intuitions ultimately provide the grounds for moral theories and that um, moral theories therefore are can't be moral theorizing can't be prior to uh, ultimately to uh, to our moral intuition so I did say that, and um, I guess part of the reason we wanted to do this was a to explore the subject in more depth. Um, uh, partly in reaction to the, 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 there was quite a bit of discussion on uh, after uh, uh, after the article posted, and so it seemed like people were interested in the topic. So it seems uh, it seemed appropriate to do
0: perhaps a more in depth discussion of it. And I can't lie; I mean, it's also just fun talking about <laughs> moral intuition. That's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so why don't you start us off, since you are more organized than I am?
0: Great. So. I mean, I'm just starting off primarily with a question that we can go back and forth on a little bit. And uh, the question is, what are moral intuitions? Um, so let's let's get started with you here. Right. So um, what I mean by moral intuition
1: um, is basically, my moral intuitionism is largely a product of the work of H.A. Pritchard. And W. D. Ross, who are probably the two most famous moral intuitionists, um, and they're both philosophers of the of the early of the early twentieth century, um, and early to mid twentieth century. And um, W. D. Ross is probably most famous as a translator of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. You know, chances are if you've read the Nicomachean Ethics in translation, you read W. D. Ross's translation. It's the one that you get on Oxford University Press, and I mean there have been subsequent in many some ways, more accurate translations, but his is his is really um, the one that's most commonly read and is still sort of considered one of the one of the one of the best. But he also um, is pretty well known for a book called *The Right and the Good*, um, which I think is one of the best works in moral philosophy uh, of the last century. And um, and he there takes uh, an intuitionistic approach to ethics. Uh, Pritchard um, does it. Uh, in his moral philosophy as well, and the piece there that's really influential is a piece called uh, "Does Moral Philosophy Rest on a Mistake," which, um, and I'll provide you know links to both of these uh, maybe uh, in the in, uh, underneath the uh, the video when it posts. So my sense of a moral intuition, my, my notion of a moral intuition is roughly the ones that that they talk about, and that is by a moral intuition I simply mean our basic feelings of obligation and duty, right? And so so for example. Um, um, suppose you and I uh, have a conversation and we agree to have lunch uh, next week and I promise to meet you at noon uh, at the restaurant. Um, In making that promise, I feel obligated to meet you at the restaurant at noon. That's all I mean by a moral intuition. Our basic, pre-theoretical, ordinary, everyday, common feelings of duty and obligation that arise from all sorts of situations and relationships that we find ourselves in. That's all that I mean by moral intuition. I don't mean anything that requires any kind of special faculty. Right? And that's that's often the charge that's leveled against intuitionists is, oh, you know, that, that means you have to commit to some mysterious faculty of intuition by which you intuit these these moral obligations. And my answer to that is: it's it's just nonsense. Everybody knows exactly what we mean when we talk about a basic feeling of obligation and duty because we all experience this uh, on a daily basis.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me let me push you a little bit here mm-hmm. um, to get to see what you have to say. So I can understand the so we can call what um, the, your position the feeling based account. It's um, it's some kind of feeling to do one thing over another or to or just to do some action or not Um, to do some action or not to do some action yeah so we can call that the feeling based account and then there's um an alternative view which is prevalent in other domains of philosophy where you have intuitions that are playing a role which would be the cognitivist view or the belief based account which is intuitions occupy a special class of belief um did you sorry Did you hear me? Did you hear me okay? I heard you. There was just some noise on your end, but it's not a problem. Yeah, sorry. Something fell down. Um, So anyway, the the other view besides the feeling-based view would be a belief-based account or in the philosophical literature, a cognitivist account. Mm -hmm. So um, intuitions would occupy a special um, class of beliefs whereby they are foundational beliefs upon which further beliefs are derived or justified and typically – in Another way to put this is maybe that they're non-inferential. You don't infer these beliefs from anything else. Right. And um, these are also beliefs that we have kind of very strong confidence in, um, very, very persistent and strong confidence in. Yeah. So these, you know, th- um, whereas not all our beliefs are like this, right? We can have some beliefs that we're a little bit, you know, iffy on, don't have, you know, too high a degree of credence, so to speak, in these beliefs. Um And you could also build into this Cognitivist account to the idea that there is some special phenomenological feel to these beliefs. Um, These things just seem self-evident or they seem true, Um, whereas not all beliefs are are like that. Now, to kind of motivate the Cognitivist account a little, maybe I could say something like this. So here's where I can, I, I think there's definitely a place where your feelings of obligation happen and there's just a feel and not an accompanying belief. So and a good example would be you walk by, let's say, let's say like the first time you ever walk by a homeless person before you've lived in New York and you've seen homeless people a lot and become awkwardly accustomed to it. <laughs> um, the first time you see a homeless person, you will have this feeling that you want to help them and you don't have some, you don't, and that kind of drives you to maybe donate some money to them or buy them a meal. But you don't necessarily, at least, you know, from my point of view, it's not like I token some belief. Sound not like I think to myself, I ought to, I believe that I ought to help this person and that motivates me to action. So there's definitely room for the, the feeling-based account somewhere in our ordinary lives, at least in terms of what motivates our action is this feeling of obligation. Now, but you might think that moral intu- the co- there's room for the cognitive-based account or the belief-based account um, for moral theorizing. So consider when you're in a philosophy classroom and you give a thought experiment and you elicit moral judgments the ordinary language talk is frequently to say something like oh you know I believe that you ought to you know let the five die or let the one die over the five in the trolley problem it's not like people are saying I have a feeling right now to help these five people in fact that might seem odd that that would happen in a classroom um, this is where it looks like the belief-based account might have a little bit more traction is when it comes to theorizing in the philosophy classroom Which is typically where you end up, where at least philosophers end up building their their theories, Um, in these you know thought experiments of idealized conditions where you're eliciting moral judgments, which seem to be kind of reflective of beliefs. So, what do you what do you think about that?
1: Okay, so, um, well, first first off, um, and I'm, I'm I'll talk about the I'll talk about the the context that you just mentioned. Next, but let me just respond to the first part first. Um, look, I just think that the belief account of these basic moral intuitions is untrue to their to, 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 their, to the experience of them. Um, in other words, you know, to use a word, yeah, the phenomenology of such experiences is such that these are felt. Um, and in, in other words, I don't believe that when. You, and, you know in the scenario that I described that when I reflect on uh on our conversation, I don't believe that that reflection gives rise to the belief that some proposition is true, namely that I ought to meet you for lunch, that I ought to keep my promise to meet you for lunch um I simply feel obligated to meet you for lunch um now. Some people might want to say, well, you know, you're just, you know, that's a sort of an argument by stipulation or, you know, um, you know, what evidence you have. I mean, uh, all that I can say is, you know, consider your own experience and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, But let me say one more thing in favor of the way that I'm looking at it. Um, I would maintain that that intuition, that moral intuition is inherently motivational, right? That is that part of its phenomenology is an impetus to action. And I agree with Hume that merely to assent to a proposition provides no impetus or motivation for action. That is, there's nothing inherently motivational about propositional attitudes, beliefs, beliefs that p. Um, which is why Hume says all, all ethics is ultimately based on the passions and not on reason, because no amount of believing that p. Is ever going to make anyone moved uh, to do P. And um, so I would argue that inherent to the phenomenology of the experience of duty is a certain kind of impetus that only feelings of obligations have, um, but beliefs that such and such is right or such and such is obligatory do not have. Um, Now, with respect to the second, to to the scenario you painted, I mean, I think in a sense you kind of answered it for me by describing the situation as one in which we're theorizing. We're engaged in theorizing. Um, and I actually don't think that what passes for intuitions that come up in those sorts of highly artificially designed cases um, are really moral intuitions at all. Um, uh, let's put it this way. Um, I don't believe that any account any 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 encounter in which you and I are sitting in a classroom having a discussion about some uh, hypothetical case of a trolley is going to tell us anything about what our actual feelings of obligation would be if you were standing on the track right in front of the guy deciding whether to shove him or not. In mm-hmm. other words, the fact that you're not in the the fact both Ross and Pritchard are of the view that these feelings of obligation arise from the actual scenarios that we are in and the relationships that we are in to others. They don't arise out of theoretical discussions of hypothetical scenarios, right? Um, And so uh, I actually think that that whole way of going about doing ethics is just a mistake. Um, um, uh, I think that, you know, that is part of what more generally I would call engaging in theoretical inquiry into moral into morals not not actually engaging moral situations where the actual sense of obligation and duty arises
0: so it's I guess it's just I've always I've always thought, I, I guess
1: let me just say one yeah, more thing. I'm sorry yeah, I
0: guess what I'm saying is
1: that I could easily see you deciding after engaging in a discussion in a classroom that you believe that P regarding the trolley case and I could very easily see if the next day you were actually in the trolley situation, standing there, that you, could, that you could do the opposite. In other words, I have zero confidence in the sort of conclusions that people come to in reflecting on those cases abstractly. I don't think that anybody knows what their feelings of obligation and duty are until they're in the situations. Okay. I mean, at best you can sort of hypothesize, but strikes this strikes me as is... highly fallible.
0: Yeah, so this is actually a question that we're going to come to later. This is the the last part of the, the talk we're, we're going to discuss whether what role moral theories play in, in in motivating our behavior, do they play any at all or just what do they what are they doing? What are yeah. moral theories doing? Yeah. So let's let's kind of bracket this for now and move on to um, another question which I had which perfectly comes up now, which is okay, so you've 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 given the feeling-based account of moral intuitions and we'll we'll uh, stick with that. Um, for this, this dialogue, unless, you know, minor quibbles need to be made here and there. Um, but then, so here's a, here's a good question. Are, are all moral intuition's equally good? Um, and now this, this requires some cashing out, obviously. Um, what do we mean by equally good here? Yeah. Um, and so let me just kind of hand this over to you and see what you think.
1: Well, wait a minute. You're going to have to tell me what you mean by, are they equally good? Because how can I answer it unless I know what you mean by "are they equally good"?
0: Yeah, so this is this is going to be tough. Do, so do, is- do you mean do you mean do you mean are they sometimes incorrect? Here's what I want to say. Here's a good way to put it. Let's say that you and I are in a moral situation. There's a baby drowning in the river, um, and you and I see the baby drowning. I have no feeling of obligation, or I have um, a feeling of obligation. Let's say to. Um, I have no feeling of obligation or a feeling of not obligation. Let's say that a feeling that I ought not save the the baby. And you have the feeling that you ought to save the baby. Just the feeling. We're not talking about a belief, right? You just have that motivational feeling. Are both of us equally kind of justified here when we go and save or don't save the baby?
1: Okay. So that's, that's, those are several different things, right? So, um, Firstly, um, one obviously can't speak of justifying an intuition. So the question is whether the intuition justifies the action. And, you know, the way I think about obligation and duty is very much, and this is just simply straight out from Ross, right? I believe that every felt obligation and duty constitutes a prima facie duty. That is, every genuinely felt obligation constitutes a prima prima facie duty. That prima facie duty, however, can be overridden depending on features of the circumstances, right? So when I agreed to meet you for lunch, I felt a prima facie duty to keep that appointment, right? Mm -hmm. But suppose on the way to meeting you for lunch, I pass uh, an accident and see someone out bleeding in the street. And there's no sign of an ambulance or paramedics or anything else. I also feel obligated to help that person. And in those circumstances, given all sorts of considerations, my feeling, my op- my feeling of obligation to save the person overrides my feeling of obligation to meet you for lunch. Okay? So I do believe that one prima facie duty, one, one, one felt obligation can override another felt obligation. However, I also agree with Ross that an overridden obligation doesn't cease to be an obligation. In other words, it continues to leave what, what's often called traces in our behavior. And so if I stand you up for lunch and therefore violate my prima facie obligation to keep my promises, right, um, I'm going to feel obligated to make it up to you. I may offer to pay for the lunch next time in return for the inconvenience and for my breaking our date. In other words, it's not as if the overriding of the duty doesn't render the overridden duty no longer a duty. It's simply that the overriding duty takes precedence given those circumstances. Now, if I change the circumstances slightly, that wouldn't be the case. right? So if in passing the accident I see the paramedics are already on the scene, and they're already taking care of this, this person, then my feeling of obligation to help the person would not override my feeling of obligation to help, to, to meet you, to keep my, my appointment with you. Uh, and so in those circumstances, there would be no overriding of the, of the, of the feeling of obligation. So, um, Prima facie, do, you know, in, moral intuitions are fallible in the sense that they're overrideable. Right, and I do think that if you know in the case in which I um <clears throat> decided in the first case where the, where there's no paramedics and no EMT on on the scene, if I then decided to meet you for lunch nonetheless and let the guy bleed to death, I think I would have made a mistake
0: right
1: um, but I don't believe that there is any sort of um uh, procedure or or theoretically informed um, um considerations that could render those kinds of choices not fallible right and in other way, in other words the fact that i can make a mistake in considering circumstances and deciding whether one prima facie duty overrides another isn't anything against my the the, the, the intuitionistic kind of duty it's simply the way things are right with respect to human 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 life and human experiences, we do sometimes make mistakes um, um, in examining situations and deciding which duties override the other, and we may realize later that we've made it, made a mistake, right? But that's that's not, for the most part, I would think, because of any theoretical consideration. And I don't see how any theoretical consideration would help us to prevent making such a mistake. Um, now, in terms of the per, you know, look. If at the end, if what you're asking, you know, with the second part of what you said with regard to the two people, one who doesn't feel obligated and one who does, you know, um, look, at some level, you're probably, some some invocation of human nature is not going to be avoidable, right? Um, we're talking about feelings of obligation and duty. We're talking about uh, passions and about emotions. And those are, you know, part of our, our physical nature, right? Um, I'm going to wonder about the health or well-being of a person who sees a baby drowning and feels no obligation to save the person. Because I also agree with Ross, again, that most of these, that our, that our moral intuitions arise out of the many varieties of relationship that we have to others, right? So he lists a whole bunch of... Um, Types of relationships that we have to other people, all of which give rise to various prima facie duties, various feelings of obligation and duty. And so I'm going to wonder whether the person who doesn't feel any obligation to save a drowning baby isn't isn't mentally ill in some way, right? I assume, I mean, as Hume would have to say, right. that that's a
0: deformed sentiment, right? Um, um, yeah. Um, okay, so I have a few questions here yeah. um, for you, if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. So first, let's point. just yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Dan Kaufman, something Answer you can't do,
1: something you can't do in a blog post, right? I mean, you can actually yeah, exactly. have a conversation. So go,
0: yeah, so go for it. Good. Go for so, it. So okay, so first, first, let me just ask you, what does so what does overriding mean? When you say one moral obligation overrides another, I guess – I take it what you meant by this was just you feel stronger about doing one more than well, another? That, that each obligation each, – each of the two obligations which is
1: of, – I'm sorry. Each of the two obligations that, that are – which are felt in that situation entail actions that cannot both be performed. Yes. I can't both keep my date with you and also save the bleeding person on the street. Yeah. And so when I say that one one duty overrides the other, what I mean mean is that in considering the circumstances, I take the one duty to be more pressing than the other.
0: What does it mean to say you take it to be? That's what I was getting at. So is that just you feel stronger? You feel more strongly? Because this is a feeling-based account. Um, so yeah, so, just so, so that one in, of them has a right. So, field right.
1: For it? so, in considering the situation, I'm standing there, I'm in my or I'm sitting there in my car, and I'm looking at the guy bleeding on the street, and then I'm also thinking of my obligation to meet you, and I just feel much more strongly upon acting on the first feeling than acting on the other. Um, Pritchard actually says, you know, when we doubt whether or not we really were obligated to do something it's not any theory that's going to tell us that Mm. it's putting us back in the situation and seeing if the feeling of obligation arises again. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, He has interesting things to say, by the way, about, about, about knowledge. Also, Um, he makes the, uh, he makes the interesting observation that, you know, that's also true. If, if I think, if I wonder whether I've been mistaken in adding two numbers, I don't consult the theory. I add the numbers again. I do the sum again. Right? Um, and see and see and see if I get the same answer. And so I, I don't I don't I don't see how I don't see how theoretical I guess part of what I don't
0: the I'm bracketing why, we're bracketing the whole like theoretical thing for now. I'm just yeah. um, I'm just no, 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 trying no, to okay, get right, right, count right. out here. Yeah. because right. so, the theoretical so, stuff so, we're going to get into later. So, so yes,
1: in when when, when in the situation When when considering what I'm seeing right in front of me and the sense of obligation to which it gives rise, and then as I'm sitting there reflect upon, ah, but if I help him, I'm not going to meet Dan. I feel a greater impetus to help the guy than to go meet you. That's the sense in which the prima facie duty is overridden. But it it doesn't cease to be a duty. That's, That's the sense in which it continues to leave traces in my behavior. I still feel obligated to meet you for lunch just less obligated than helping this guy. And I can't do both. Yeah. But I, in other words, I don't want you to think that this is, that I say this because that's what needs to be the case in order for my theory to be true. That's what I actually think describes yeah. what happens when we are in these situations.
0: Yeah. And I can, you know, look, and so, yeah, just to be clear. So I actually, no matter what, I agree that there are feelings of obligation. Yeah. Um, that would be that, to me denying that would be as insane as would I take a limitivism about the mind to be right there are no mental states right? <laughs> yeah to me you know i take I would take a limitivism about the feeling of obligation to be just as insane as that right um, it's just denying denying a feature of our existence that we all undergo um, so i don't want to deny that but what I want to at least consider um, is whether or not this um, feeling based account can can adequately describe or explain or um, yeah describe or explain the t- like all of our moral experiences so i'm also thinking so i keep on thinking that you know in my in my day-to-day life i do think about moral beliefs especially when i experience conflicting feelings and obligation so i was thinking about when i experience conflicting feelings and obligation i frequently do enter a cognitive state where i think like do i do i Ought I I do X over Y? I don't don't
1: deny that. that, But what I don't think about is utilitarianism or cut. What I think about are the morally relevant features of the situation, right? I think about what happens if I don't help that guy bleeding on the street. I think about what happens if I I stand Dan Tippins up, right? But all those considerations...
0: Well, then you feel really shitty about yourself. Right.
1: All those thinking of... All those... All that thinking about the context is thinking about those features that give rise to the feeling of obligation. In other words, when I feel conflicted, what I'm experiencing is uncertainty as to which prima facie duty is overriding. But I don't see how that can be answered by appeal to any beliefs that I have. Right? That gets answered by the, the thinking that one does in those situations. Is a thinking that involves reimmersing ourselves in various features of the context, right, of the scenario. And, so, and yes. seeing what feelings that reconsideration gives rise to. That's exactly what Pritchard means when he says if I ever doubt whether I'm obligated to do P, I don't consult a theory. I reimmerse myself in the situation in which the initial obligation was felt and see if I feel it again, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, 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 that's the – I agree with you that we engage in that sort of thinking when we're conflicted. But, I, but my view is that what that thinking consists of is thinking about the features of the context that give
0: rise to the feelings of obligation and duty in the first place. Okay. So here's, here's what I'm wondering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I'm wondering if I can try and make some wiggle room once again for um, a belief-based account of intuitions here. Mm-hmm. So here would be here would be the picture the picture would be like this pic, um, this would be the alternative picture to you it'd be something like what gives rise to those feelings are actually beliefs and those beliefs are the intuitions so we think about our beliefs frequently when we have these uh, when we have conflicting feelings because the beliefs are the things that are giving rise to those feelings to begin with um, so let me so here's I did an example. That's
1: very abstract. I mean, yeah. I mean, the reason, my initial reason for saying that I don't think that beliefs lie at the bottom of this is because beliefs have no intrinsic impetus. They have no intrinsic motivational uh, uh, phenomen- phenomenology, whereas I think that
0: feelings of obligation do. And I think that that's actually what characterizes our experience. So I would, I'm wondering, so let me actually just um, push you a little bit maybe on... The question of whether or not beliefs can be motivational in any way at all. Mm-hmm. So, they may not be motivational in the same way, in terms of the same phenomenological feel um, of motivating you to do something. But perhaps we can still make room for them being motivational in a different way. So, consider weakness of will, for example. Let's say that um, I believe, um, you know, I believe it's in my best interest to not eat the chocolate bar or not eat chocolate for a month. Or something like that. Okay. Um, however, I go to the can, or you know, I go to some grocery store, buy my apples, and I see a chocolate bar um, right in front of me in the, you know, right at the cashier's line. And the weakness of will account, or you know, if I were weak willed, I would <laughs> recognize, oh shit, I've got this belief, you know, I really shouldn't eat chocolate, but I still feel this strong desire to eat the chocolate. And so there are cases where if you're weak-willed, presumably, you eat the chocolate, right? But if you're not weak-willed, your belief still determines your action insofar as you resist. <laughs> you resist um, coming to that feeling. I
1: don't, think th- um, I, I don't think that's how these things work at all. I mean that description just sounds to me so untrue.
0: Really? To, to the but actual then, like, experience
1: we... of these. So yeah, so let me give you my, my version yeah. of what you just said, okay? Good. Um... um Presumably, there's a reason why you believe that you ought not to eat chocolate. So let's say, um, let's say that you weight as much as I do. Okay, um, which you know, I can only wish upon you. Um, <laughs> I can only look forward Thanks, to the day Dan when your metabolism Kaufman. crashes and burns because no one should be thinner or better looking than I am. Um, <laughs> which, of course, I am not. No, you are. Unfortunately, that's why. That's why. Well, I'm, that's well. why I'm jealous. Go on, man. Dan Kaufman. Tell me more. Tell me um, more. <laughs> So the reason, obviously, is um, it's something to do with, you know, your health, okay? Mm-hmm. So I believe that I ought not to eat this chocolate because um, because I, I, I care about my health. I, I, I feel, you know, I feel motivated to, to want to uh... – notice something about that, by the way. Um, I could believe that something is bad for my health and still happily continue on doing it anyway because that belief doesn't translate into a desire not to – not to do into a desire to preserve my health. Right. I have to, I have to, I have to care about my health in order for that belief to do any work at all, right. To do any work in in the realm of action. Right. So I come to the supermarket and um, there's the chocolate bar and I feel a desire for the chocolate. I feel, I feel craving for the chocolate bar. When I sit there and wrestle with myself, you know which is what the weakness of will scenario paints, right, you know, this wrestling with oneself and then either failing or succeeding, right? Yeah, um, When I fail right we right, when I'm wrestling with myself, I'm again considering the situation. So I'm thinking about my felt desire to be healthy. And I'm thinking about and what gave rise to all of that. Probably things to do with my with my daughter and my wanting to live long enough to, to not to not to not abandon her midlife by by croaking too too early, and so on and so forth. All these other feelings, by the way, are wrapped up. Feelings of obligation are wrapped up in that. Um, and then I also consider my desire for chocolate deliciousness. Um, I consider you know how much how much I care about living, how long and all that sort of thing. Um, and then, yes, if I go one way, it's simply because the, 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 the desire for the, for the deliciousness and beauty is greater than the desire to stay alive longer, right? Um, in, in other words, the situation you described strikes me as being almost identical to the one I discussed with regard to, um, to uh, whether to meet you for lunch or meet the, or meet the person uh, uh, or, or save the person on the street. Um, The thinking I'm doing is reconsidering the context that gives rise to these competing feelings, right? These feelings that that lead to incompatible actions. And um, then it's a matter of, of whether one is felt more strongly and thus overrides the other, right? Sure,
0: yeah. The way you described it strikes me as artificial. I don't think that that's what happens. Okay, let me give one. La- I mean, I'll give one last two second little like motivator here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there. Once I would again, be. I would be.
1: By the way, interested to know. Once you're done with this part, I'm interested to know what you think rests on this. In other words, why you think we might want to take the belief account yeah. rather than the feeling account? So, okay. um, yeah, I'll tell you a little. Go, uh, yeah. you
0: know, a couple of things. But about go
1: that. on first with your 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 last um, round of this this
0: argument. Yeah, so, so I was going to, sorry, so what I was going to say was I can still agree with you that there are, so there, you know, I'm, I'm kind of adopting, by the way, your methodology here of kind of reflecting on my own um, experience, my mental life when I undergo these, right. these things like weakness of will cases.
1: Well, what else, would one, what else would one do? I mean, you know,
0: yeah. can't, um, look,
1: can't look inside other people's heads. I'd look to some theory, Dan. Right, of
0: course. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you know, there are definitely times of weakness of will where I do, you know, I do undergo the mental clashes that you've just described, where I think about what I care, or I, you know, I recognize what I care about, and the um, and I desire to uphold what I care about, or maybe the caring. I see what uh, you
1: feel more strongly. Yeah. yeah.
0: But then there are other times where it's very quick and I just do something like this. I feel the desire for the chocolate and I say, I literally just say to myself, I told myself I wouldn't eat chocolate. I don't reflect any further. I don't, at least, you know, nothing consciously pops up like I strongly desire not to eat the chocolate or I really desire not to eat it. I just literally tell myself like I told myself, I decided that I wouldn't eat the chocolate. Right. But how, How is
1: that a belief overriding a feeling? That's not an example of a belief overriding a feeling.
0: So my my thought was when I tell myself, you know, I told when I say I told myself I wouldn't eat the chocolate. This is me saying I believe I ought not eat the chocolate, right? Um, like I told myself X is saying like this is what I believe, right? I agreed to this with myself before. Um, I don't know. You don't think so? Um, no, I don't. I I, I just.
1: To me, beliefs are simply a belief is simply to assent to a proposition to the truth of a proposition. And what you just described to me sounds to me like you know
0: you reminding yourself,
1: you know, you're you're reminding yourself. I'm telling
0: myself I believe that it's best for me not to eat the chocolate. Right, but... It's a prudential right, belief.
1: Right, but the reason it's best for you not to eat the chocolate is because it's going to negatively affect your health. But unless you care about negatively affecting your health or not, that's not that belief is not going to
0: make you not eat chocolate. Here's what I should say. I can, I can agree with you that cares are the things that are going to motivate these... or that are going to allow me to have these kinds of beliefs. What I'm simply saying is, in actual cases where you're... Um, experiencing a weakness-of-will temptation, I've at least found that at times I just mentally think of the belief that I have. And that inspires me to just like resist the desire to eat the chocolate. I don't think about what I care about or have these feelings of what I care about. I've got this strong desire for the chocolate and then I say, but I believe that it's best for me not to eat it. And I walk. Um, Look,
1: I can't tell you what you say to yourself. I just don't see how the belief that I ought not eat chocolate can override the feeling of a desire to eat chocolate unless it's basically a shorthand for saying I feel more strongly about keeping the promises I made to myself.
0: Yeah. In other, so, in,
1: in other words, you made pro- promise yourself not to eat chocolate and in reconsidering now the situation, you're simply reaffirming that that... that that, that, that promise you made, you feel more duty-bound to keep that promise that you made to yourself than you do to, to, to eat the chocolate in front of you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you... Why don't With you, that in mind, let me say why... do you why, tell me why,
1: which, what, what you think rests upon, what hangs on whether we
0: go do it one way or the other? So you could have... So first of all, I think that if you... Depending on which view you take of intuition, the feeling-based or the belief-based could have a significant impact on your answer to a question we're about to discuss, which is that of moral expertise. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as moral expertise? So a lot of times when it comes to domains of expertise, they're belief-based and not feeling-based. In fact, feeling-based are the very things where people say there's no such thing as expertise, just snobbery. Think about wine connoisseurs, for example. Unless um, they have... Um, if, if all they're doing is like reporting their experiences, um, and not any beliefs about the flavors, about what's actually the case, um, it seems that there can't be such a thing as moral expertise in in feeling based domains. All right. So, Uh, so so was that all or is there more to it? Cause I
1: have have something to say about what you just said, but if there's more to it, I want to let you finish the thought before I respond to what you just said. There is more, but I'd prefer you go first. Okay, so um, I wouldn't agree that there's no expertise and taste. Great. Um, um, so, well, look here's here's the here's the superficial, stupid uh, answer. <clears throat> uh, if there's no such thing as expertise and taste. How come no one's going to make you a wine critic for the New York Times? But they are going to make the other guy a wine critic for the New
0: York Times. Or, oh, you're actually asking Yeah, me. I am. Um, so you could give... You if, could there's
1: give. No, if there's no expertise in art, why would the Metropolitan Museum of Art not hire you as a curator? Not hire music, here. so right. but but would hire Philip De Montebello or whoever I don't know who it is now. But
0: so here's I think we need to draw a distinction here. So you can be an expert in the sense of knowing <laughs> facts about the subject matter, but not an expert in terms of your feelings being better than other people. You think so that somebody you think so that
1: somebody funny. hires somebody as, a, as a, you think somebody hires someone as a wine critic because they know facts about wine. Or because they're so better let me, tasters let of wine. I me ask you
0: an equally rhetorical question. I mean, I, that's not my answer. I'm just yeah. saying, let me yeah. ask you an equally okay. rhetorical question, though. You think that you can be more of an expert at your feeling of flavor? Your feeling of I flavor think, is, more think, think, is more expertise or is more full think, of expertise I than, think that somebody can be a better taster of wine than somebody else, yes. Okay, so that, by the way, is a harder question to ask. I was going to say, though, to answer your rhetorical question, which was, why would the Metropolitan Museum of Art hire some person who has an art history and you know massive art background over me as a curator or as a, a, critique, a critic? You know, you could someone could give. I'm just saying someone could give. I'm not saying this is my answer. I actually do think there's expertise as well in things like tasting wine, um, where the feeling one person's feel is actually more expert is more expert than another person's feeling but um someone could give an answer to your rhetorical question which would be something like look the guy who knows art history he knows he could tell he can he knows where this art situates in history and he knows the various techniques that were used but it's not as though his evaluation this piece of art is beautiful would be more expert than someone who says it is that's not true In so words, saying uh, someone could uh, give that kind of answer.
1: But a curator, that's not the basis on which a curator is hired. You know how many people have that kind of art historical knowledge that the curator is hired partly on the basis that he's going to pick the better paintings for their collection. And what and that's a matter of taste, right? Um which are the better paintings? It's a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. Um, um you know uh, Look, Hume Hume has an essay called of the standard of taste which I actually did a Electric Agora this week special piece on. And um Hume certainly offers at least some what I what what he would call criteria for being a a, a how shall I say an authoritative critic. Now I don't think that for the reasons that I discussed in the essay I don't think that any such criteria could provide a kind of standard of taste or what you mean is some kind of justification for the claim X is better than Y. But I do think that the kinds of traits, characteristics that Hume describes in that essay do get at some of the characteristics that we typically assign to the people who we think are the better tasters. You know, so one of the things that makes you a better taster of, let's say, food or drink, is the ability to make fine grain discrimin- is to make fine grain discriminations in flavors and tastes. You know, I can, you know, if you gave me, you know, an Isla malt, a Highland malt, a Lowland malt, a Speyside malt, um, I could just I could tell you the difference, right? Uh, a completely un- uneducated you know, scotch drinker, could not, right? That That's part of what makes me a better taster of scotch than that other person. And that's why someone, those are the kinds of reasons why someone, uh, let's say, who owned a chain of liquor stores would hire me to decide what scotches to carry, not somebody who couldn't tell the difference between, you know, uh, 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 you know, a 15-year-old Highland malt and some and some shitty uh, 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 bottom shelf uh, blend, right? Um, and so I, I do think that there are that there is such a thing as expertise um, with respect to taste. If what you mean by expertise is something like there's, we can distinguish between better and worse tasters, right? I don't think if what you mean by expert is someone whose judgments. Um, are always justified in a rational sense—that is, you know, whose judgments are, are sort of guaranteed to be true—that uh, I don't think. Um, um, but um, but better tasters, yes, absolutely, they're better tasters, um, and that's true for wine and, and 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 beer and 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 spirits as well as it is for food, as well as it is for paintings, as well as it is for you know a, a lot of other things. So I don't know that I, if, if that's where you're going, you're going to say, well, there's going to be a problem for morals because we can't distinguish some relevant sense of an expert. Um, a, I would say you can, to the extent that there's such a, that there's even a, a, a credible notion of expertise, you can on the feeling view. And I don't think you can get anything more out of it on the belief view anyway.
0: <laughs> so, so here's how – like Anyway, I'm happy, the, to, I'm happy to yeah, go with so you, down you that Yeah, so here's how you might road. think you could yeah, – Yeah, I mean so obviously there are, there are uncontroversial domains of expertise such as um, physics, mathematics, or like chemistry. And obviously this is, these are typed frequently by convergence upon certain beliefs right. and ability to give justifications for those beliefs. Right. right? But notice, that does, is, notice what
1: it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that they're never wrong.
0: No. Right. No, of course not. Right. But the idea is they can, they can. There is convergence, and there is ability to give justification. And you might also think this is also what some other people have said. One other mark of expertise is, and by the way, these are all a lot of these are contestable, and I just really want to pick your brain on this mm-hmm. because um, I've only recently started to delve into this expertise stuff, and it's really interesting, actually. So, anyway, so one other thing that might mark an expert is that they have intuitions. Um, now, intuitions here might mean something different from what you mean. At least in the case of physics, that probably means a belief. Yeah. Um, yeah not some course. feeling of, yeah. So, so you yeah. Know, they have intuitions where lay folk have none. So a physicist has intuitions about quantum theory X or, you know, the, this physical problem Y that's unsolved. Whereas a lay person will have absolutely no intuitions on it. Right. So when it so, – so these are some things that might type um, expertise. One but is I, don't intu- but
1: I don't know that those – hold on I don't know that those intuitions play the same role relative to the theorizing that the scientist does, that the intuitions sure. I'm talking about play relative to the theorizing we do in ethics, just to be clear about that.
0: Yeah. OK. Yeah. Oh, go on. Agreed yeah. also. Agreed yeah. also. Yeah. Good yeah. note. Um, so anyway, so you, you know the reason the belief view uh, might matter is – so you have you have convergence – And there's justification for the convergence. And there's intuitions where there are none for the lay folk. Now, when it comes to art, for example, or wine, this isn't the case, right? So when it comes to art, many lay folk will have intuitions about whether or not this is a beautiful painting or not. There will not be convergence, even amongst art critics, about whether or not a painting is beautiful or not.
1: To some extent, I mean, there's tremendous overlapping consensus. I don't know any critics who are going to say Rembrandt's a bad
0: painter, right? Well, Um, it might depend. um, um, I I guess it might depend on which school you're in. I mean,
1: certainly, look, I mean, even, you know, sort of the very ideological critics, like, so take someone like Clement Greenberg, who was, uh, you know, a a hardcore formalist, um, and he was very much part of the vanguard of 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 critics advocating for abstract expressionism, uh, and he says various things about about um, you know what is ultimately valuable in art and all of that. But even he is not going to deny that tons of much older representational art has all sorts of value and significance. And so, I mean, there is going to be substantial convergence. Whether it's more or the same or less than you have amongst experts in science, that's a different story. I, I don't know about that. That's something I can't answer just off the cuff. Um, I will observe that there's tremendous disagreement about scientists. I mean, I know that amongst physicists, there's some people who think that string theory is not much better than, than Star Trek. And then there's other people who think that this is the future of of, of physics. And so that it's the solution to the, to the problems that they have and whatever. And, and, and so I don't know that we might not be overstating the amount of convergence that characterizes the people we call experts. Look, I just don't, I don't think the notion of an expert is all that rigorous. And so I don't know that I would be able to define it. I would simply want to talk about better and worse tasters
0: yeah, more, so more and less said, by more and less competent
1: agree. judges of physics, yeah. you know, propositions. So like I said, I
0: actually agree with you yeah. that there is expertise in things like yeah. tasting and like art. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say, you, you know, you asked me what else hinges on the question of belief versus right. feeling-based, and I could you can certainly see someone making a case that um, some kind of field that has to do primarily with beliefs is one that is capable of having expertise. Right. And so it could answer your, it could affect your out the outcome of this. Um, view you have of moral right. expertise right because that, you, that was just right. why right. i right so yeah. the idea
1: is that so this for the audience to be clear the idea is supposed to be um if the idea of expertise in play is meant to assu- is meant to mean the possession of some set of propositional attitudes
0: which you can justify then
1: there's a much then we have a relatively clear notion of what expertise means Whereas if by expertise we mean something like a better or worse taster or a better or worse feeler, as we mean in ethics, then the relevant notion of expertise is less clear uh, uh, or less easy to make. All that I would want to say is that – and I think that that's perfectly fair to say. All that I would want to say is I think that we easily overestimate just how clear the notion of expertise is even with respect to things like propositional attitudes – And I think we underestimate the degree to which there can be expertise in things like tasting and feeling. Um, And that's probably because I just don't think that the notion of expertise, period, is a rigorous notion. Yeah, uh, I think it's I think it's applied in a lot of different. I if I did an ordinary language analysis of it, I right. think you'd find it's applied in a lot of different ways. It means a lot of different things. Yep. Half the times it's used, it's meant rhetorically as some sort of honorific. I mean, you know what I mean? Another way, words, yeah, it, absolutely. It, if, absolutely. I don't know that there is going to be any theory of expertise that's going to give us necessary and sufficient conditions for what counts as an expert.
0: Agree anywhere, but even right. if even if you know you held your ordinary language for you, you could still hold that there are some things that we just don't say are expertise. Mm-hmm. And yes, and might think that. The moral domain. If you have the feeling-based account, falls into that. I, you it's, might say that, but you right. know, we'll have to see. I mean, I think I can give
1: a I, I think I can talk about that in a way that I think you know. Um, right, because you know,
0: it, it reminded me, you know, the your intuition-based account. Or when I'm sorry, when you said something like, "Are there more expert feelers than others?" It just initially reminded me of like former roommates I've had or people I've met who say things like, "I'm really good at feeling people's energies." I'm really good at feeling. Yeah, I
1: don't mean anything like that,
0: right? Right? right. No, no, no. Saying <laughs> like you know, and, and obviously there, I'm like, there's no such thing as an expert and feeler of energies. Right? No, Sorry, no because, just, there's
1: no, because there's no such thing as energies in the yeah. sense that and they what's mean. Funny
0: is that's also more like they're actually just expressing. Really, I think that they're just expressing when they say, "I feel his energy." What they believe about them, <laughs> what they b- believe about the person in question. Um, at least many times. They're like, you know, I feel, I could feel that he was very angry. That's just her saying, you know, her or him saying I believe he was he or she was angry.
1: Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. By the way, you should probably remind everyone of what it is you're doing because it looks like you're in an right. airplane cockpit. Yeah, like so I'm buttons. actually
0: traveling to Missouri to visit you right now. <laughs> my, my private my private 747 here. What is no, that so up I'm, there? It's an yeah, alarm? So I'm, I'm actually in lab right now we are currently conversing while i'm at work which is by the way i have permission it's okay, okay. Yeah, never, yeah um but this is i'm actually just in a hood so this is the fume hood right here um which is supposed to prevent um a lot of shit from going wrong while you're working on certain biological specimens so, does that, so mean that if you when, pull down, down the hood glass, when this glass thing is down to a certain level you'll never hear or there's this uh, uh, that's the, that's like everything's okay Meaning that the, the, like the hood is doing proper enough airflow that you shouldn't get you know screwed over by – or your biological sample shouldn't be screwed over. But if you raise it too high, an alarm goes off because it means the, the, the glass is high enough that the airflow isn't really preventing pathogens so, from getting in.
1: So if you lowered the hood all the way, could you like smoke in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn, I, I wish I had a hood because I'd love to like have a cigarette while I'm having this conversation. <laughs> all right. Go on. So uh, okay. where so do you anyway. want to go next with it? I I, I understand the frame We're, you're working in. Right. So, so what's
0: the um what's the what's our time at by the way? We're about uh, fifty
1: five minutes, so we could go on oh, another. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. all right. We could go on another. You know, we can go an hour and fifteen minutes, an hour and twenty minutes. No,
0: right, right. Um, I'm just going to. I wouldn't just go more than that. Here. let's definitely move on from moral yes. expertise. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I well, hope we haven't
1: know. even discussed moral expertise yet. There's, I know.
0: I know. We haven't, but we should really move on just because depends on what else people. you got. Sure. Okay. So let me, let me, let me see what you think here. So here the, okay. So here is the next question I was going to ask you. Um, what role do uh, moral intuitions play in moral theory creation? Okay. So, you know, do you want I, to do that? Or do you want to stay, stop stay on the expertise? I don't
1: care. Start? We can even still come back and we may go back to expertise. I mean, but I'm happy to do that. I mean, Because when most people hear people talking about ethics, they immediately think moral theories. They think Kant, they think Mill, they think these sorts of things. And so I think it's worth talking about those. Um, I don't see any way to answer your question without, in a sense, saying what a moral theory is, right? What a moral theory does. Yeah. Um, And let's just remind everyone what a moral theory is supposed to do, right? A moral theory is supposed to identify the general characteristics of rightness and wrongness, right? <laughs> it's supposed to tell us what all right acts have in common and what all wrong acts have in common, right? Yeah. So in that sense, it's very straightforwardly descriptive, okay? And notice something. It presumes that you already have a conception of, of, of right and wrong acts, right? Yeah. It simply wants to, wants to figure out what, are those all, what do those all have in common, right what makes all the right acts right and what makes all the wrong acts wrong well that presumes you already have a sense of what the right acts are and the wrong acts are and the theory is simply telling you what makes them so okay so in answering your question the first thing i would say is unless we had unless we felt obligated in various ways moral theorizing would never never even arise right Mm -hmm. moral theorizing is an attempt to provide some kind of rational reconstruction of the feelings of obligation and duty that we already have. And simply to tell us what it is about things that causes us to have this feeling, these feelings, and not those. That's all that it does. Mm -hmm. Um, So my answer to you uh, is simply that Moral intuitions, first of all, the feelings of obligation and duty that we have ordinarily on a daily basis are the reason why we engage in moral theorizing at all. We then look to moral theories to try to provide some sort of a rational reconstruction of those moral feelings we already have. Now, given that that's the the case, you really can describe moral intuitions as I am understanding them as providing, in a sense, the subject matter for which it is the job of moral duties to explain. In that sense, I think moral intuitions are a lot like observations relative to scientific theories and not at all like intuition as you normally encounter it in epistemology, which normally means something like belonging to uh, our pre-justificatory common sense, right? Um, Yeah. I don't think that, I don't think that int- moral intuitions play the same role that intuition or common sense plays in epistemology, right? I think moral intuitions more play the role that observations play uh, with, in, in, in epistemology, right? Um, the job of a scientific theory is to make some sense, to give some rational reconstruction of the things we observe. Um, and similarly, the job of a moral theory is to give some rational reconstruction to make sense of the obligations we feel um that said notice observations can be mistaken and moral intuitions can be mistaken at least in the sense that i can mistakenly think that one is overriding when further consideration of the circumstances will reveal that to be untrue to be that to be incorrect
0: um i was me, going to also ask let me let me just, yes, me just go let go me go just, let me just finish go this line
1: and then you can um now that being said given that moral intuitions provide, in a sense, the subject matter that it's the job of moral theories to explain, just as observations provide the subject matter whose, whose job it is for scientific theories to explain, the ultimate condition of adequacy that any moral theory has to meet is whether, in fact, it does make sense of those intuitions, just as the ultimate consideration of adequacy for any scientific theory is whether it actually does save the phenomena. And that's why no moral theory ultimately can violate our moral intuitions because the moral intuitions provide the conditions of adequacy against which moral theories are measured. Last thing on this. Why should you think that's true? Well, if you notice, most of the what are taken to be the most damning objections to the various moral theories, whether it's Kant or Mill or whichever the others, the most damning criticisms are always the criticisms that point out when the theory yields perverse results. And all that we mean when we say that that the theory yields perverse results is that it yields a judgment on an action that simply violates our moral intuitions regarding the action. So the typical most powerful objections of utilitarianism are when uh, the greatest happiness seems to entail that we should do all sorts of stuff that intuitively we think is bloody awful, okay? Like gladiator games or organ harvesting or whatever it is you want. Similarly, the most damning uh, 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 criticisms of Kant's ethics are all have to do with all those cases in which Kant's ethics theme seems to tell us to do things, that we're required to do things that will cause harm, um, uh, uh, such as uh, telling the truth, even when doing so, uh, will make nothing good happen and will cause someone to die, right? Yeah. Um, And so I actually think that we, in other words, I don't even think I need to provide much of an argument for this. I think we know this already. All we need to do is look at the major objections to our moral theories and they're all appeals to intuition. They're all appeals to moral intuition. I'm not denying that there are no purely internal theoretical problems with some of these moral theories. But what we take to be the really damning ones, the the deal breaking ones, are where they violate the moral intuitions, and especially when they violate them in a big way.
0: Yeah, right. Um, okay. There is there is so much to say. <laughs> um, not necessarily not not necessarily like oh I have so much stuff to object to you about. Just um, there's just a lot to talk about here. So. Maybe this, will, maybe this will help to clarify your view even more. I know it was already pretty clear, but I just at least wanted to bring this up. So here's a way you might think that our day-to-day moral decision-making is theory-laden in the sense that in, – in a specific sense. Let me outline what I mean by theory-laden here. Go on. Okay. So what I mean by theory laden here is evidentiarily theory laden. So what we take to be as evidence for a feeling not being mistaken, or evidence for which feeling should override another, can be can be theory laden.
1: Give me an example.
0: Yeah. So first, let me tell you what. I, or let me also just for just for everyone, so we're all on the same page. Let me let me spell what I mean. More, what I mean by um, how a theory can influence what you take to be as evidence. So, the classic example of this would be in physics. So, let's say, uh, I think this is given in almost every, you know, philosophy classroom in um, philosophy of science. But something like this. So, um, there's some vapor streak in a cloud chamber. Um, as evidence of the passage of like an alpha particle or something like that due to radioactive decay. By the way, as you can see, there's a ton of theory-laden language here, right? Yeah, language course. that only makes sense in the, in in within some theory. And so the idea is, you know, when we say a vapor streak in a cloud chamber is evidence for the passage of an alpha particle, vapor streak in a cloud chamber is extremely theory-laden. It only makes sense in light of a theory. Right. Now, you might think that this can happen after you've learned, after you've learned um, various moral theories. Um, talk about, after you've learned various moral theories, you might think that your language becomes heavily theory-laden. So when you have some overriding, or so when you have a conflict between intuitions, say, should I help the homeless people? or this homeless person, or should I get to my meeting, that when you look to features of you know, the situation, or when you look at the context, you might think that this becomes somewhat theory-laden. You think, in terms of, you think in terms of maximizing utility. You think in terms of duty, right? And maybe you think in terms of virtue. And these, it seems, at least after, I don't know, after you've taken you know, some philosophy classes and learned some theory, you might think that these become pretty theory-laden. Um, and in that sense, theories end up playing a role in our moral deliberations. What do you think about this?
1: See, I think I just I I think that the theories are just much more sort of post hoc than you're giving them credit for. So, example, you know, you know, <laughs> the idea. In other words, in other words, look, certainly um when i 'm considering when, when when i'm when let 's say I feel conflicted about whether to save the bleeding person on the street or whether to meet you for lunch okay um not that i not that i would i don 't think but let 's suppose i was um and I was going through that kind of thinking that we both have been talking about that what one engages in um in which I allege what i 'm thinking about is i 'm re i 'm replaying through the situation right either, either afterwards or while I'm there, right? Um, certainly I'm going to consider things like the harm that's going to come to the guy if I leave him bleeding there, right? Um, versus the relative harm that's going to come to you if I stand you up for lunch. and I'm going to notice one is much less than the other. Um, Certainly I'm going to think about sort of the inherent force of promises, right? Um, but, you know, this is why I think, this is where I think, you know, Ross's version of this, of, of, of intuition is so strong. Ross, does, Ross says that these feelings of obligation arise out of various features of relationships that we have to other people. I just think that the theory just is what comes along later to try and make sense of all of that and in terms of to drive, provide some sort of a, a, a story you can tell, post hoc, right, about what it is you're doing, right, and, 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 and why, right? I don't... And so, and so while it may provide you for some with some new language, I don't know that it provides you with anything that in a sense... You didn't already. You didn't already know. I mean, it, it provides you with terminology, um, but it doesn't provide you with any sort of really new categories of thought because the moral theories themselves are simply a reflection of what the theorists took to be the most important relationships and thus the most important obligations and duties. In other words, the reason why someone's a util, like you know is a utilitarian is simply because they decided that. The feelings of obligation that arise from our relationships as benefactor to beneficiary override all others, right? And the Kantian uh, thinks that a different set of moral obli- of, of feelings of obligation that arise from a different set of relationships is overriding of all others. I think while they're both wrong, is that nothing is ever overriding
0: of all others, <laughs> um, and so. Except for your promises to me,
1: I just right <laughs> um, and so i just I just don 't see that they do that much work um, prior to
0: acting hmm. so I guess let me let me also ask you, just to zoom out for one second. Um, I hope this isn 't too much of a tangent, but i 'm curious now, so you know how you, you continue to say that um, that desires are, you know, desires or these kind of phenomenological feels, feelings are the things that motivate behavior. That actually yeah, causes and, and,
1: and, and, that, and that I'm simply echoing. Right. Like, yeah, I, no, in and that and sense, and, I'm
0: a human. I'm a human. Yeah, so let's, sense. Say, let's say I agree with I agree him about you. That. Yeah, most people would want us so, no, almost no one would want to say that beliefs are like epiphenomenal and um, completely epiphenomenal, meaning that we just have beliefs, but they don't do anything at all shape our actions in some way. No, certainly not. So let me ask you quickly, because this could, um, you know, how do you think that beliefs do shape our actions? Because this can give you an answer as to whether or not you think that a moral theory could end I up think,
1: shaping I think that beliefs may, that beliefs often, or knowledge, let's even talk about knowledge, okay, that knowing certain things makes me aware of certain relations that I stand in relation to others that thereby may give rise to moral feelings of obligation. So so suppose suppose that I had no idea that there are massive famines going on in places like Somalia and Ethiopia and other places. Finding that out, having that piece of knowledge will now cause the sort of me to become aware that there are a whole set of relationships to other people that I didn't know that I had. That now are gonna give rise to feelings of obligation with respect to those people, right? Um, and so no one denies that knowledge provides information that, in a causal sense, may lead to feelings of obligation. But notice it's never gonna do so directly. What it's gonna do is it's gonna make me aware of certain aspects of my, rela- or dimensions of my relationships to others. And those relationships are what give rise to feelings of obligation and duty.
0: Okay, so then let me they, uh, look. Uh, in yeah. that sense,
1: this is just yeah, textbook, this This is, is just textbook Hume. It's purely the knowledge. It's purely instrumental, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, do you think that moral theories can enter into this kind of causal? Um... I do. Th- do Here is what I think moral theories do. I do
1: think that co- moral theories provide. Some clarity, partial rational reconstructions of the kinds of things, the kinds of aspects of relationships that give rise to feelings of obligation. I think that they, they perform a clarifying function, right? So utilitarianism makes us, you know, really clarifies the way in which our relationship to each other along the lines of being beneficiaries or, ben, or Benefactors or beneficiaries gives rise to all sorts of senses of obligation and duty. I think Kant um, uh, Kant's theory provides us with um, um, a lot of sort of clarity as to the way in which certain other certain other relationships that we have to be one another give rise to feeling of obligations and duty. So I, my view is that, but I think that all these moral theories can only do so partially because I actually think that the relationships that give rise to our feelings of obligation and duty don't fall into a single type or pattern, right? Um, and so I, my view of the value of moral theorizing is that it's primarily uh, clarifying in nature. But this won't be surprising to anyone, as my overall view of what the use of philosophy is is that it's primarily clarifying in, in character and critical in character? Um, it, it's not substantive in the sense that uh, knowledge,
0: knowledge-seeking uh, inquiries generally are. Right. Yeah. So then let's let's talk for a second right here at the end um, mm-hmm. about things like effective altruism, which seem so they're extremely theory-laden. <laughs> right. Uh, and so let's try and. You know, let's try and uh, you know get your view
1: on. How... I don't think that they're. I don't, that's why I think that they'll never be compelling to more than a very small number of people, because they're only going to be compelling to people who have a very one-dimensional conception of their relationship to others, right? So, so, and, and in my view, a very unnatural one. Um, the fact of the matter is that I stand in way more. You know, this is essentially Ross's criticism of utilitarianism. Ross says utilitarianism is based on the assumption that the only substantial and morally relevant relation that I stand in to other people is that of benefactor to beneficiary or vice versa. And that's just not true. I stand in all sorts of relations to people that give rise to all sorts of duties. And so, uh, I think that things like effective altruism, and all of these, would strike me as very extreme moral stances. And by extreme, I mean extreme in the sense of you must always do this or you must never do that or this must always be your, your overriding consideration or this must never be an overriding consideration always yield um, recommended recommendations for action that are only going to be compelling to a very small number of people. That's why ethical veganism, if you look at it, it's like a tiny fraction of a percent of the entire population that are vegans and from what I understand, something like 85% of them cease being vegans or vegetarians after a relatively short period of time. That is, they don't stick with it um, because I think it's very hard to convince oneself that um, that that very strong kind of singer rights kind of way of thinking about obligation uh, is compelling. Um, and similarly with the, you know, give all your money away to charity, or giving, you know, it, it, it is it is largely Singerites who are doing these sorts of things, and it strikes me it's because they have a very um, uh, narrow and impoverished conception of the types of relationships that we have to one another from which our senses of obligation and duty arise. So I do think, look, I do think that in a sense a theory. I do think that a person can be in the grip of a theory, such that the theory then causes them to behave in all sorts of unnatural and perverse ways. Right. right. But notice, it usually doesn't last. That's what the eighty-five percent failed well, vegetarian. That's what that's what the eighty-five percent failed, no, failed, failed thinking, tells about, you. Right. For
0: example, certain forms of uh, Christianity and you know the mosaic code and, st- and stuff. For example, so I'm thinking about consider the story of um, oh, shoot, who is it? Was it Jacob and his son, like Isaac, Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, Isaac, you, you know, like Abraham,
1: Abraham and Isaac, Abraham was Abraham and Isaac. And you're talking about the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the yeah. sacrifice, sorry, it's
0: been quite a while since I've been to Sunday school. Yeah. Um, so I, I've taught Sundays,
1: I've recently taught Sunday school, so I'm a little closer to it. And actually we did, we ta- did talk about that. So,
0: yeah, we talked about it briefly, but I thought it was yeah. worth mentioning, mentioning here too. So, yeah. so here's a case where you, so. In the case of Abraham and Isaac, Isaac, um, the overriding moral principle there was follow God's command. Is it? They got uh, okay. Let's let's ask this. Um, that was I, always the, that was always what I gleaned from. Look, Wait, I don't want I don't story I don't so, want to, I don't want to start
1: us down. I mean, we don't have the time to engage in a a, a lengthy exegesis of the Abraham and Isaac. Let me just say that. The Jewish interpretation of this is very different from the Christian one, and it's not at all clear that the that the Jewish interpretation agrees that God ever even intended Abraham to do any such thing. Um, um, and so, I would almost prefer if you have a point to make that you're going to use that as an illustration of. I would almost prefer that you you um, you use a different example because I'm not sure we're going to agree on the interpretation of okay, the... Okay, so here's of, just of generally
0: what I was... Let me just tell you what I was trying to illustrate, and I'm pretty sure, you know, everyone will be able to think of examples on their own, um, unless you deny that this is actually a class of... that this is a phenomenon that ha- phenomenon that happens. But So the idea is... Um, here's a case where a moral theory is persistent, even though you might think it's kind of perverse. Um, so the perverseness here would be something like an overriding moral principle is doing something for this higher power, even if that includes, you know, obligations not to murder others or whatever. Um, So the idea is you can imagine that you think that there, you know, unless you think that all um, cases in history have not been like this, the idea is there's supposed to be cases in history where People have done some perverse things that they didn't want to, or at least they say that they didn't want to, but because they kind of had um, an overriding moral obligation to do so, which was to obey kind of divine command or something like that. Now, if you deny that that class of case...
1: How, happens, does, that, how, but how does that require me to accept that what's overriding, doing the overriding, is the belief in some proposition?
0: No, 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 no. I'm not saying a belief. I'm just saying um, this was this was just to say that some theory can persist even if it's perverse. But what's the theory? Was,
1: what's the theory?
0: The theory is I ought to do what God says.
1: Yeah, basically. See, I would, I, but I, I would say nobody acts on that. People act when they, when they
0: feel duty bound to God. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, but the thing is, you said that the theory describes describes uh, why we have certain feelings and whatnot right
1: the theory um, describes the theory describes at the surface level the theory describes um, the general characteristics of rightness and wrongness that's what a moral theory does okay yeah in doing so what it's doing is identifying what is the what are the most what is the most significant Dimension of human relationship, which then gives rise to that feeling of obligation. Right. So, for utilitarian, um, the surface level account is that the general characteristics of rightness and wrongness have to do with inflicting suffering, okay, pain and pleasure. In saying that, the utilitarian is is also saying that the relationship that we have to one another as benefactor to beneficiary is primary. Okay. What I'm saying is that only describes a part of, our, of the overall moral picture because we are not only, in my view, we are not only duty-bound to reduce pain and increase uh, pleasure. The sense in which the the being in the grip of that theory yield, yields perverse behavior. Then, is the sense in which it reflects an incomplete picture of one's obligations and of the underlying relationships that give rise to them, right? Okay. So, what I'm not understanding is what is it? What is it? You're, what is it you're saying is wrong with that? I mean, if you're saying that you think that effective altruists are behaving normally, or that ethical vegans are behaving normally, I would disagree. I would, I would argue that they're behaving perversely. And part of the way, part of the evidence I bring is that very few people are willing to do it, right? And even the ones that do it, don't do it for very long, right? right? And 85% of vegetarian slash vegans cease being a vegetarian slash vegans. Um, and that tells me that they're unable to sustain, even though they're in the grip of a theory, they're unable to sustain it. In a sense, nature overrides, Nature ultimately makes that impossible, and this and this again, I agree with Hume. We're people before we're philosophers, and no philosophical consideration is ever going to override, in the long run, those sorts of those sorts of considerations. I might be in the grip of a theory that tells me that that, that the external world doesn't exist, but as as Hume tells, as Hume properly points out, the minute I walk out of my study and out into the world. I'm not going to act like a person who thinks that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure what it is you're you're criticizing. Is it that you're saying, no, 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 these people really are behaving, these people aren't behaving in a perverse way?
0: Um, Or are you you saying something else? I was saying something much, much more modest. Um, I think that, yeah, I wasn't trying to attack almost anything you were saying except for one very, very small point. Yeah, go ahead. Which is at one point you said something in particular which caught me, which was, perverse theories don't last. and saying, I was deni- I was just denying that by giving an example of what I thought was a perverse theory, which has lasted. That was it. If I said that, that
1: was a mistake. I, okay. th- that's not what I meant to say. What I meant to say is a person's ability to behave perversely because they're in the grip of a theory that doesn't last. Reality always winds up seeping back in. Right? Um, so, you know, the ethical vegan might want to tell himself, okay, well, it's you know, anything where any animal is killed for any, for any reason uh, other than absolute, total, necessary survival is an abomination and should be disallowed. But there's going to come some point at which um, they're not going to be able to sustain that view, right, because the view assumes a very narrow conception of obligation that's based on an equally narrow conception of our relationships to others. Um, and simply with, similarly with the effective altruist, um, I just think that there are the, you know, the, the, that the dimensions of our personality and the dimensions of relationship that we have with each other give rise to so many different kinds of duties and obligations that no one theoretical framework can possibly adequately describe them. And so if we ever take on just one of those theories, and allow it to, in a sense, be total in our consideration, it's going to cause us to act perversely. Now, I'm not saying that the theory can't be sustained. What I'm saying is the perverse activity can't be sustained, that eventually we're going to wind up acting in ways that violate, that go against the theory.
0: I see. And you're talking in terms of a single individual's lifetime? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I see where the confusion is arising. Yeah. I, I thought, yeah, okay, great. I did not mean that the theories
1: don't say, gosh, I mean, utilitarianism is still going. Right. I'm saying the the capacity of any actual person to do nothing but be a utilitarian their whole life, that is what's not sustainable. Yeah. Which is why I generally don't think that these theories are very useful. Um, I think that their usefulness is far outweighed by the perverse, the perverse uses to which they're put, which is why I generally think a theory like Aristotle, that virtue theories are vastly superior. And I do think that... Uh, the kind, the kind of intuitionism that I'm talking about with respect to obligation and duty, which is still a relatively narrow subject in ethics, is compatible with the kind of Aristotelian virtue theory.
0: Yeah. So there is just one last thing I'm going to yeah, ask you and then great. we'll close. And this, is, this is actually something I wanted to ask explicitly before. And you, you might you – know, I think you've alluded to answers to this um, before and you might have even explicitly said it but I missed it and I think it would be worth – this will probably be a question that's on a lot of the viewers' minds. Okay. You've mentioned before that you can be mistaken about which obligation overrides another. Yes. To the And you've even said things like, if someone didn't feel an obligation to help a baby... I'd wonder. You'd wonder about their health. Their mental health. Their mental health. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's got to be some relationship between making a mistake and you wondering about someone's mental health <laughs> um, in, in terms of you know rightness or wrongness to feelings. So... Here's let me let me try and put the um, frame this question a little bit. So I don't, I don't know
1: that I would I don't know that I would want to say that I could give any rigorous
0: account of rightness or wrongness of feeling. Um, okay. Um, I, I would. I was going to I was going to try and motivate it a little bit. By the way, I was going to say you might think that you can have right or you you can be right or wrong. In a certain sense, in in a sense of being, I want to say, you know, and this is going to be slippery talk. I'm going to say it in quotes justified or unjustified in having a certain feeling. Um, in other domains. So think about, for example, feeling anger. A lot of times we'll be like, he shouldn't have felt anger. Yeah. He shouldn't have been angry. Right? That's if really interesting. And actually, you know, yeah. So no. react, and the other thing is there are also. Objects of feelings which aren't appropriate recipients of certain attitudes. So for yeah. example, if I stub my toe on a rock, I you know, and I get really pissed off and I'm just like, screw this, screw this rock, right? <laughs> Everyone would be like, dude, an object isn't the appropriate recipient right. of that reactive attitude. Yeah. And so yeah. you might think similarly, there are some things that aren't appropriate recipients of feelings of obligation yeah. or you know
1: Yeah, and I I I when I talked about being incorrect and when I talked. I didn't mean anything where I thought I could tell you what right feeling is, and right. I'm actually very suspicious of that sort of talk. I don't don't deny that we talk like this all the time. Well, you ought not to have felt that way, or she shouldn't have gotten. You know, she shouldn't have. I actually think that if you try to cash out that out, you're going to run out real fast. In other words, I don't. I don't. I actually don't think that that goes very far. I don't think uh, – I think that's a mess. I, I've, I've actually been thinking about this. I actually have an essay that I've probably started writing three or four times um, <laughs> about the statement, you ought to feel X. Um, I actually think at a certain level down, it's ill-formed. Um, or you shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's actually ill-formed um, and, and really what they mean is something else. Um hmm. So let me just say one last thing, though, to clarify, because uh, the way I put it, I could see how it could give rise to this. A, when I say incorrect, I mean something like the following. I might have decided to meet you for lunch. In other words, I may have, in the in the context, felt, you know what, uh, you know, an ambulance is probably going to come along, and he'll be all right, and he doesn't look that bad, maybe, and... So I really feel bad. I've already I've already I've already stood up, you know, tippins twice. Uh I'm gonna go make lunch, go to meet him for lunch. And then later, this may be nagging me. Did I make the right decision? And I may then rethink through the scenario, rethink through the day's events, and I may come to the opposite conclusion. That's the sense in which I meant one can be mistaken. Mm. But by the way, that sense of mistakenness is itself fallible. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think
0: that there's any, you know,
1: That's I don't think a, I don't think a theory is any solution to that. So you know,
0: the fallibility is just something we're going to have to live with. I like, I you know, and um, I actually kind of like that um, that little account of of correctness or incorrectness that you've given because you haven't. What a lot of times gets philosophers and moral discourse into or not all philosophers, obviously, by the way. When I say philosophers, just you know, yeah, some philosophers um, into trouble, myself included, before is when you try to give some rigorous like success conditions. No. Or some rigorous conditions for what it means for yeah. something to be ethics um, isn't
1: like that. Look, I mean, look, if correct ethics, or incorrect. If ethics, you... if ethics was like that, it wouldn't be so hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things
1: I like to say to people is like, look, if these moral theories really do what so many people say they're supposed to do, then why are there any moral dilemmas? Mm-hmm. Why is why is why is making the right decision so damn difficult if there are these nice instructions that come from these beautiful theories that we can show are true or false? then why are moral conflicts so torturous and difficult? Why are they amongst the most difficult con- conflicts that we face? Um, uh, and that tells me that there aren't any instructions, right? Um, um, and that we're mistaking what moral theories tell us for kinds of instructions. Um, I say the same thing to religious people. If you really think that you know, the moral instructions and how you're supposed to live are given in the Bible, why, don't, why do you have any moral dilemmas? Why do you mm-hmm. – why, you know, why do you, why, why is he – you know they'd say
0: that's <laughs> Satan. <laughs> well,
1: if they're Jewish, they're not going to say that because there's no devil in Judaism. There's Satan, but he's just one of God's uh, helpers. Um, uh, but um, – so yeah, I mean I, that's all I meant by mistaken. I didn't mean anything more rigorous than that because I don't think anything more rigorous than that can be given.
0: mm. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, there's a clear account of mistake on the cognitivist or the belief. Yes, But I don't don't believe that they could cash it out. I just, you know, just wanted to throw that out there. They can have it, but I don't think they can pay for it. (laughs) And,
1: um, you know, the last thing I'll say, um, we're exactly at an hour and a half. The last thing I'll say with respect to the thing about the baby, that's a slightly different case. If I was with some person in this situation, the person exhibited no sense of obligation to save the baby. And then later, in reconsidering the situation, still felt no sense. And in talking to that person, there were no other rival duties. There are no other feelings of obligation that he was obeying and, and, and which he felt overrode. the. Yes, I would think there was something wrong with him. Because look, at the bottom, I did say to you, there has to, since, since at the bottom of all moral theorizing and all moral discourse and moral behavior are these feelings of obligation... Feelings are, are natural occurrences. Now, that, that doesn't mean they're not socially inflected. But ultimately, they arise from, from us. <laughs> and so there is going to be some relationship between our biological natures when combined with their, their social embeddedness that causes these things to, to arise. Um, uh, and so, you know, yes, you know, th- there would be a certain point after which reconsidering and reconsidering, and the guy still is reacting the same way, I'd start wondering, hey, are you some sort of sociopath? Right? Are you lacking sort of, you know, some equipment that the rest of us have? Um, but again, notice how that would not be a rigorous statement, right? I mean, that would just be a sort of a wondering because I do know that at some level, at the bottom, there is nature, right?
0: Yeah. Um, and by the way, that's, um, it's actually... Probably important to note, this actually clarifies the notion of intuition, moral intuition here a little bit more. Sociopaths frequently do things. In fact, they'll do what look like moral things, right? right? Um, and in fact, they'll say things such as, you know, X is wrong or X is right. But it turns out that when they say that, um, what they mean is something very different from us. So we, we usually express our feelings of obligation or something like that, right? Um, and we'll say something like "X is wrong" or "X is right," but they're they're just expressing, or they're just basically stating what is the case relative to some set of rules. So, you know, the classic example is with children. If you ask them, you know, "Hey Timmy, should you, um, you know the teacher said you shouldn't chew gum in class? Um, should you chew gum in class?" and he'd be like, "No, of course not," right? And obviously, this is because he's following some rule that's right. set in the classroom. But then, if you ask Timmy hey, let's say you know, the teacher is not watching and, and you know, there's no rule about this. Should you punch Billy? Right? They'll be like, no, of course not. Right? And here, obviously, they're expressing something different, which right. is not just mere rule following. Right. And so, yeah, so the sociopath, you know, obviously, he can still behave and he can you know, have motivation to do things, but he you know, presumably doesn't get that feeling of obligation, which we typically express when we say, maybe, maybe we express when we say things like X is right or X is yeah. wrong.
1: I think that's the way that they're commonly sort of informally characterizes people. That yeah, Lack conscience, lack of faith, lack of sense of
0: moral obligation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if he if if it were me having this dialogue with you, man, he'd totally go some kind of cognitivist route. Right. Something. Yeah. <laughs> not saying anything about me. No, not at all.
1: <laughs> You're the least sociopathic person. You're a lover, not a fighter. Oh, thanks. Nice. A... <laughs> that's
0: exactly what a sociopath would have you think. Right.
1: So I think that uh, we. This is a good place to stop, I think. This is great. Well, thank you very much for another very enjoyable conversation. Dan Kaufman, thank you. And uh, I look forward uh, to seeing you again in person, maybe over Christmas break. And, uh, of course, over at the Electric Agora.
0: Always, always. Looking forward to it, Dan. All right, take care, my friend. All right, bye. Bye Bye-bye.